go ahead and open up your Bibles to John chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers can help you out with that right now as they're coming up and down the aisle. John uh, chapter 15 is where we're going to be um, this morning as we've been going along in our study in John's gospel. John uh, chapter 15. I'm not sure how you're doing in terms of your uh, Christmas shopping so far this year, but if you're interested in giving the gift of art, you know, something a little more uh, cultural, and uh, if you have a pretty big uh, budget, then you might want to consider a piece by Italian artist uh, Maurizio uh, Catalan um, at an art show in Miami this past week. Um, um, some of his work was on display. There was actually three editions. Two of them were bought by pri- private art buyers, one by a renowned art gallery. Each piece sold for about $120,000. Uh, the piece was called Comedian, and this is the piece. <laughs> that is an actual banana. That is actual duct tape. It's not in a frame. It's not in a glass case. It's just literally stuck to the wall. $120,000. So I've been thinking about this. It's Christmas season. I'm going to head over to Superstore this afternoon to the produce department, then over to Home Depot and get some duct tape. If he can do this for $100, I'll do it. I'll come to your house for $12. Not just bananas, if you, want, if you want carrots and celery, you know, just, I'll make it happen. It, it's interesting, the, the article that I read um, said that there was no provision made for the fact that the banana will decompose. I mean, it's already pretty ripe. I don't know if it was green when he first put it up. See, this is, this is fruit that won't last, And people are making a pretty enormous investment into fruit that won't last. John chapter 15, Jesus tells us about fruit that will last. Fruit that is worth investing in more than $120,000, more than all the wealth in this world. A fruit that matters really more than anything. So look with me in your Bibles at John chapter 15, beginning at verse 1. I'm going to read down to verse 17. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing." If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so 
prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call your servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. What we have here is Jesus making this statement, I am the true vine. As we've been going through the Gospel of John, we've been making note of these I am statements that Jesus makes about himself. This is in fact the seventh and final I am statement. He said in chapter 6, verse 35, I am the bread of life. I'm the light of the world in chapter 8, verse 12. In chapter 10, verse 7, I am the gate I am the good shepherd in chapter 10, verse 11. I'm the resurrection and the life in chapter 11, 25. And I am the way, the truth, and the life in chapter 14, verse 6. And now he says, I am the true vine. What's unique about this statement is that he adds an adjective. The only other time he adds an adjective is when he says, I am the good shepherd. And that was to set him apart from the bad shepherds, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders at the time who had just kicked a, a, a blind man out of, their, out of their presence because they were bad shepherds. Jesus here calls himself the true vine. And so what we can infer from that is that there's another kind of a vine. A vine that is not true. A, a vine that is not faithful the way that Jesus is faithful. And Jesus' disciples, having been familiar with the Old Testament, would have known that the vine is often used to describe the people of God. In the book of Jeremiah, in the book of, the book of Psalms, in, in the book of Ezekiel, in the book of Hosea. All over the Bible, that God's people are called God's vine, the vine. Let me give you one example. John, or Isaiah chapter 5 says, My beloved had a vineyard. On a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes. But it yielded wild grapes. Isaiah paints this picture of this vineyard. And God is the, he's the one who planted the vineyard, who's tending to the vineyard. And he's expecting it to produce grapes, but it doesn't produce what he wants it to produce. Now, what is the meaning behind this? Well, who is the vine? What does the vine symbolize? Well, Isaiah says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. So the people of God. The people of God are the vine. But look 
at what happens. He looked for justice, that's the good grapes, but behold, bloodshed, wild grapes. For righteousness, good grapes, but behold, outcry, wild grapes. So Jesus says that he is the true vine. He is saying that he has been faithful where the people of Israel have failed. The people of Israel were called the descendants of Abraham. We're supposed to be a blessing to all of the nations. All the families of the earth were to be blessed in Abraham's offspring. But right after that, we see Abraham fail. He goes down to Egypt, and he doesn't bring a blessing down there. He puts his, his, his wife into the arms of another man, brings a curse onto that land. And that was just really a microcosm of what would ultimately happen. Rather than blessing the rest of the world by showing who the true God is, the people of Israel repeatedly took on the false gods of the other nations. Rather than producing grapes, they produced wild grapes. But Jesus is here to say, listen, I am, I am the ultimate fulfillment. I am an offspring of Abraham, and I am the true vine. I am going to be faithful where the people of Israel failed. If someone from another country were to ask a Jewish person, how can I know God? That person would have said, well, you know, you need to, you need to get circumcised, you need to follow the law, you need to read the Torah, you need to go to the temple, you need to offer sacrifices, you need to participate in the, in the festivals. So Jesus says, listen, if you want to know God, I am the true vine. All of those things at one point in time had a purpose. But if you want to know God, you need to come through me. I am the true temple. I'm the one who fulfilled the law. I'm the one who made the ultimate sacrifice. He says, I am the true vine. The other thing that's interesting about this particular metaphor, this statement that Jesus makes about himself, he says, I'm the true vine, but then he also includes his father in the picture. He says, my father is the vine dresser. Then he paints the picture a little Clearer in verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away and every branch that does bear fruit he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Jesus says there's two kinds of people, there's two kinds of branches. There's those that are connected to the vine, that are bearing fruit and they get pruned by the Father and then there are those who are disconnected from the vine that are not bearing fruit and they are taken away by the Father. And he reassures them in verse 3, he says, Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Another way to translate verse 3 is to say, Already you are pruned. The, the word for cleaning and the word for pruning in Hebrew is the same, is the same word. Uh, a clean room is the same as a well-manicured um, uh, orchard or vine or bush or tree. To be clean is to be pruned. So Jesus is saying there, already you are pruned. Already you are bearing fruit because of the word that he had spoken to them. Now why did they choose to, to translate that word cleaned instead of pruned? Well remember back in John chapter 13 where Jesus was washing the disciples' feet? And Peter didn't want his feet washed. And then Jesus says, well, no, you have to let me wash your feet. And then Peter's like, no, wash my whole body. And then Jesus said to him, already you are clean. 
So the translators are trying to help us see how all of John chapter 13 and 14 and 15, and we're going to see 16 and 17, it all fits together. My biggest temptation is just to kind of not just preach seven or eight verses at a time, but to preach three or four chapters at a time, because this is all one big, beautiful, glorious section. The, the cleaning symbolism in chapter 13 leads right into the, the pruning section here in John chapter 15. It all flows together. So Jesus assures them that they're clean and then he tells them in verse 4, abide in me. We're really going to see two things coming at us from this passage as we think about what this means for our lives. And first is that we need to hear the call to abide. The call to abide. Nine different times Jesus is going to make reference to this idea of abiding. Jesus said that there's two kinds of people in verse 2. Some that bear fruit and some that don't. And in order to bear fruit, you must abide. Look at what he says in verse 4. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself... Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. He's telling them that they need to abide in him. That that is the way for them to bear fruit. If you look further down at verse 8, it says, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Fruit is the evidence that you are a Christian. And the only way for you to bear fruit is for you to abide in the vine of Jesus Christ. He calls us to abide. Vance Pittman, a pastor in Las Vegas, Nevada, who's had a huge impact on Pastor Robbie Simons down in Oakville and therefore uh, a huge impact on me through, uh, through Robbie, describes bearing fruit in this way. He says, bearing fruit is the life of Jesus in us being lived through us. Jesus doesn't actually define what the fruit actually is. We're going to get some hints but Jesus doesn't lay it out. He doesn't fully explain the metaphor. All he simply keeps saying is, by abiding in me, then you will bear much fruit. It's the vine that's connected to the roots. That's what's getting the nourishment from the soil. That's what's getting the moisture from the rain. The branch isn't getting those things. The branch is dependent upon the vine. The fruit is really just the sap or the life of that vine flowing out through the branches. Jesus calls us to abide. Here's the amazing thing. He doesn't call us to bear fruit. He doesn't say, go and bear fruit. He just continually says, abide in me, abide in me. Fruit bearing is not the command. Fruit bearing is the result that shows that we are abiding. You see, so often in my life, I live as though I've been commanded that I need to bear fruit. 
and I'm running around trying to get things done, trying to lead my family, trying to lead the church, trying to grow in my own character, trying to manage my finances, trying to evangelize my neighbor, trying to do all of these things, working so hard like a branch that has no life in it, trying to produce the fruit. Meanwhile, what my aim, what my desire What my time needs to be spent on is not to try to bear fruit, but to be intentional to make sure that I am abiding in Christ. Now we all all know how to talk about the term abiding, but what does it actually mean to abide? It's not exactly a verb that we use in everyday life. Language, abide means to live in, to remain, or to stay. It's interesting. Christian disciples are called to go. The Great Commission. Go and make disciples. But before Jesus told us to go, he actually told us to stay. That there will be no fruit in our going unless we abide and are staying. We're not supposed to, when he says go, remember he said, surely I'm with you always. So in our going, there must be a staying, a remaining, an abiding. This word is used in John chapter 1 when the disciples first meet Jesus through John the Baptist. And Jesus asked them, what are you seeking? And they say to him, where are you staying? Where are you abiding? Where are you living? Where's the place where you live? And then Jesus took them to the place where he was staying. And then it says that they stayed with him. They abided with him. To abide is to live in a place. Jesus is saying, live in me. The Greek word is meno, which is really closely related to mone, which is the noun that we looked at last week. Jesus said, in my Father's house are many rooms, in John 14, verse 2, many mone, many dwelling places, many houses. John 14, 23, Jesus said that he and his Father, we will come to him and make our home, our, our mone, with him. That's the noun form. But in chapter 15, it's the same word, but in its verbal form, in its action. Make your home, live, abide in me, meno. So abide is a verb, even though we don't use it very often, but abide also has a noun that we also don't use very often. We only use it sort of when we're being kind of foolish, when we invite someone into our house. We say, welcome to my humble abode, right? No one really talks like that anymore, but abiding is the verb and abode is the noun. This is where I live. I'm supposed to live in Jesus. I am commanded to abide in him. Jesus is calling us to live in relationship with him, to let his life-giving power flow through us to produce fruit. The Apostle Paul in Galatians 5 talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. And and the, the point of that is not to give us a list. The point of that is to show us the Lord. 
That's, that's, it's not that, well, I'm good at, you know, I'm kind of growing in goodness, but I need, I need to improve in faithfulness or in, or in patience. No, the idea is, am I relying on Jesus? Am I seeing the evidence of Jesus' love flowing into my life and then out in the fruit of the Spirit? So as disciples, we are, we are commanded to go, but we're first commanded to stay, to stay in him says in verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he who bears much fruit. And apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. What does he mean when he says nothing? Like can you scratch your ear apart from Christ? Yes, you can. Can you make craft dinner apart from Christ? Most of us can He's, he's not saying that there's not, like that was impossible for us to do anything. But what he's saying is if you want to produce the fruit that matters, if you want to produce the fruit that's not a banana duct tape to the wall, that you must abide in him. And that the fruit that he produces is so important, so valuable, so glorious, so life-defining, so eternal, that whatever something you can do apart from Christ pretty much equals nothing. Become a millionaire or a billionaire. If you do that apart from Christ, and if you're not abiding in Him, if you're not producing the actual fruit of Christ, that might as well count as nothing. Become the prime minister or the president of a country. Whatever it may be, whatever great accomplishment you could get, straight A's on your, on your finals, whatever it may be, that's something compared to what Christ wants to do in us is nothing. This is why the Apostle Paul says, whatever gain I had, I count as loss. That this fruit of having Christ's life flow through us to bear fruit that is all that ultimately matters that something is so important that everything else is counted as nothing are we living our life am I living my life in such a way am I so desperately pursuing the life-giving power of Jesus in the vine to produce fruit or am I going after something or many things that at the end of the day will count as nothing? Apart from me, you can do nothing. He says in verse 6, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. Jesus says here, if we do not look to him as the true vine, as the way to God, if we look to ourselves, if we look to some sort of religious practice, if we look to some sort of philosophy, apart from him, the, the consequences are quite dire. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch that withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. Jesus here is talking about hell, which he often does. 
hell and fire and brimstone and weeping and gnashing of teeth and judgment and eternal outer darkness. We often just, we assume that those are like judgy Old Testament kind of passages. Every phrase that I just used came from the mouth of Jesus in talking about hell. He's the one who speaks in that way. So it's, it's not that it's just some sort of Old Testament way of thinking and that Jesus came to... No, Jesus is, is the predominant teacher on hell and on judgment. Others might say, well, well I mean, that's, that, that's, he's, he's speaking meta, metaphorically. I mean, he, he just called himself a vine and that we're branches. So when he says fire, he can't mean real fire. And okay, so if, you, if I want to follow you down that trail, I'm willing to follow you down that trail. So if he's speaking metaphorically, what do you think the fire is a metaphor for? When, when it says that they are thrown into the fire and burned. It's not referring to a spa treatment. Even if you don't believe that there are literal flames, what is the metaphor describing? It's not something pleasant. It's something excruciating. It's something awful. It's something that we should want to avoid, that we would want our neighbors and our loved ones and everyone on planet Earth to escape from. And this is what we are called to do. We are called to tell people about the true vine, about bearing fruit, about being a branch that is connected to Jesus, to abiding in him. This is a serious and sobering passage. All this talk about abiding and our abode and where do we live and where's our home. We need to understand that our home, where we belong, where we ought to abide because of our sin is hell. But Jesus came from his home where he alone belongs. And he came down to our home. So that we would not have to go to hell, but that we could go to be with him in heaven. He wants us to abide. He wants us to be warned. Going back to verse 2, he says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. God the Father is the vine dresser. He's the farmer. He, he finds the dead branches that are not connected to the vine. He takes them away. Verse 7, they're taken away and they are burned. It's serious. And going back to verse 2, he, he says that the ones that are bearing fruit, he, he prunes. Pruning is not pleasant. It hurts, but it doesn't hurt to harm, it hurts to help. Jesus tells us that his Father brings pruning situations and circumstances, trials and tests and temptations into our life. Sometimes it hurts, but it doesn't hurt to harm, it hurts to help. It, it's there, he says it right there, 
Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. He wants to bear more fruit in our lives. But it's not pleasant. But the New Testament is filled with these descriptions. In Hebrews 12 verse 11 it says that that we are like children and God is like our father. And sometimes he disciplines us so that we'll grow, so that we'll mature. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 6 talks about gold being refined by fire. To burn off all of the impurities. Discipline is not a pleasant experience. Refining fire, not a pleasant experience. Pruning is not a pleasant experience. But here's the thing that we can take comfort in. Whatever you are facing right now, whatever you've been through over the course of your Christian life, whatever you're going through now, here's one thing that we can understand. That there is always purpose in the pain. Always. It's always a pruning It's always for the purpose of producing more fruit. Sometimes we can see it right in the moment. As it's happening, we can see how this is going to produce fruit. Sometimes it takes a long time. It's pretty rare that in a matter of seconds after a branch is pruned that you see fruit pop up. Right? That's not how gardening works. It takes time, and we, we want to see the change. We want to see the fruit. We want to, under, we want to see that it's worth it. Why am, I, why am I going through this? I want to see the fruit of this. I want to see the purpose. We don't always get to see it. It takes time, but it's always happening. It's always happening. And we can take comfort in that no matter what we are facing. Verse 7, he gives a little bit more clue about how to abide. What does it mean to live in him? He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. This is one of the ways that we are to abide. We're supposed to abide in his word. That's what we're doing right now. We're trying to get his word into our hearts. That's what, that's what we do hopefully on a regular basis. That we're meeting with the Lord. That we're reading our Bibles. That we're letting his word abide in us. And that we are abiding in his word. And he says, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. We talked about this last week, but there was a snowstorm, so let me bring you up to speed. Jesus had, had, had said at the end of chapter 14, ask whatever you wish in my name and it will be done for you. And so often we think about praying in Jesus' name as sort of like having the coupon code, you know, that you type in and... It's not, it's not magic words that means our prayers get answered. No, to pray in Jesus' name means that you are asking for something that Jesus himself would sign off on. That if you were to put it in writing and Jesus were to read it over, that he would sign it as though he wrote it. That's, that's what it means to pray in Jesus' name. So when we pray, listen, it's not just that we make a request and then tag the coupon code on the end. No, that when we pray, we are wrestling We are trying to get the word of Jesus into us so that when we pray, the words that are coming out of our mouth is the word of Jesus. And so it's it's not just as simple as, as asking for something. No, it's wrestling with God. It's not just as simple as seeking what we want. No, it's surrendering what we want to try to know Christ more. To try to know his will. 
So that's what he's getting at at verse 7, that as we abide in Christ, that his word would abide in us, that we would begin to see answered prayer in our lives as our prayers get more conformed to who Jesus is. Verse 8, he says, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Fruit is the evidence that someone is a Christian. Fruit is the signs that the life of Jesus is flowing through the branch of that person's life and producing fruit. It's how you can tell if you are a dead branch that's going to be taken away and burned or if you are a living branch that is being pruned. Here's one of the things that you can take comfort in. If you find yourself in a season of suffering or you find yourself continually going through seasons of suffering and trial and difficulty, that is evidence that you are being pruned, which is evidence that you are bearing fruit, which is evidence that you are a true disciple of Jesus. If your Christian life has just been so smooth and so easy, you can either, first off, expect some suffering to come into your life for sure. Or secondly, you should really check and make sure that you're not just a dead branch. Are you truly trusting in Jesus Christ? Are you truly living for him? Are you truly abiding in him? Because it's the fruit bearing that comes through the pruning. That is what proves that we are disciples. Now he changes gears here in verse 9. I'm going to read verse 9 down to verse 12. And, and notice the transition with me. He says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. See, here's the, here's the second thing we need to glean. is So there's a call to abide and then there's a command to love. That the way that we, the way that we abide is to follow his command to love. So if you're taking notes today, jot this down. Secondly, we have a command to love. A command to love. Now look with me in your Bibles at verse 9. He says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. He says, abide in my love. The word abide appears nine times. The word love appears nine times. Verse 9 is the place where the two concepts are put together. Up until this point, it's been abide in me, abide in me, abide in me. And then he says, abide in my love. And then he has all of this discussion about love. His love for us, the Father's love for him, our love for one another. So he gives this command. Following his command to love and understanding his love for us, that is where we are supposed to abide. Notice how he equates our love for him with the Father's love for him. Verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. He's drawing a bunch of parallels between his relationship with the Father and our relationship with him. Verse 10, he says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Now, at, at, at first glance, verse 10 Sounds like Jesus is saying, I won't love you unless you obey my commands. He says, 
if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. It sounds a little bit like quid pro quo. That's the Latin phrase over the last several weeks. We've all been trying to figure out what, what does that mean? Quid pro quo means this for that. If you do that, I will give you this. But if you don't do that, then I will not give you this. It sounds like Jesus is saying, if you love me, if you obey my commands, then I'll love you. But if we read the whole verse, we'll see. That he says, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Does the father love the son because the son obeys the father's commands? Is there a this for that, a quid pro quo relationship between the father and the son? Is the father saying, Jesus, I hope to love you someday, but I want to make sure that you obey me first. Is that how the Trinity works? That's not how it works. The, the, the father, spirit, son, they're, they're eternally preexistent before the creation of the world. Long before Moses came down Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments. Long before the law was given. Long before there was any command to obey, the Father already loved the Son. Do, do you follow? So, if we are to obey His commands and abide in His love, it's not a this for that. Because He says it's just as the Son obeys the Father's commands and abides in His love. So which comes first, the obedience or the love? It's always the love. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. And because of that, the Son obeys the Father. The same is true with us. It's just as. Jesus loves us. And so we obey his commands because we love him and we are secure in his love for us. He says in verse 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. He speaks these things, these things about obedience. He says, I want you to be as happy as possible and because of that I'm going to tell you that you need to obey my commands. Now this is so counterintuitive, it just goes completely against the grain to everything in our culture from from movies to music, from, from, from a academia to the arts. Because all the messages that we are hearing from all of these various channels in our world says that real joy comes when we get to do what we want. That real joy, fulfillment, satisfaction is when we can freely live on the outside the desires that are on the inside. That's when we'll truly be free. That's when we'll truly be happy. That's when we'll truly have fulfillment. That's when we'll truly have joy. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. Follow my commands. He says, and the reason why I'm telling you to follow my commands is so that my joy would be in you and your joy would be full. See, this runs so different to the teaching of our, of our world. It, it's so different for, for three reasons. Because, listen, we can't trust our desires. Here's why. Our desires are always changing. I was joking with a guy in our church the other, the other week because he used to have like really long, like really cool long hair. And he just short, cut it to look really short. And I just said, hey man, grow it while you got it. And then I said to him, you know what? Change it as much as you want. 
actually, because it's just nice to have options. I don't have options anymore. You see, we're always wanting to change. If you were to go back through the photo album at my house, like there were some bad choices. I had some desires for hairstyles that I wish I didn't desire, but I, I wanted them at the time. See, we, you don't get joy when you do whatever you want because whatever you want is always changing. That's why when people ask me, Ted, would you ever get a tattoo? I said, well, I won't get a, t- a tattoo until I'm at least 70 years old. Because I think by the time I'm 70, I'd be at least set in my ways enough that I'd actually know what I want. Because if I got a tattoo of all the things that I thought was cool when I was 14 and 18 and 24 and 34 and 40, I'd be all covered. You see, just because you think the thing is cool now doesn't mean you're going to think it's cool later. You might not even think tattoos are cool later. It's always changing. It's always changing. We can't, listen, we will never find joy when we do what we want because what we want is always changing. Here's the other thing. Our desires, what we want, is always in conflict. We never actually truly know what we want. Just ask, just ask Lindsay when we go out for dinner. She never knows what she, what she wants. I'm always just like, I'm just like radar, find the hamburger, or find, okay? And that's what I always, but with Lindsay, it's always right down to the last minute. And she'll tell me what she's going to order right before the server comes, and then the server comes, she's already changed her mind again. It's always changing. It's always in conflict. Always in conflict. I mean, I, I desire to be in better shape, but I also desire to crush Krispy Kremes. <laughs> Those are legitimate desires, and yet they are in conflict one another. I desire to be in good shape. I desire to get up early and do sit-ups, but I desire to stay in my cozy, warm bed. Those are both legitimate desires. You will not find joy... By doing what you want, because what you want is always changing, because what you want is always in conflict. What do we really want? And then lastly, and most disturbing, our desires are corrupt. Sometimes we've acted on corrupt desires and we've paid the consequences. And whether that's true of you, then you know how corrupt your desires, because it's all played out before you. For others of you, you just know inside your mind, whether you're alone by yourself or stuck in traffic on the highway, we think some things, don't we? We We think some things about ourselves, we think some things about other people that are utterly corrupt. To live your life by following your own desires does not lead to joy. It leads to absolute misery. Which is why we live in this culture with so much freedom and so much liberty and so much encouragement to give in to every impulse and desire and we've never been more miserable than we are right now. But Jesus says, abide in my love, follow my commands. 
Make my desires your desires. Have my word abide in you so that when you pray, it's as though I'm the one speaking. He says, that is how you will experience joy. Abide in his love. Verse 12, he says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. He, he said this back in chapter 13. Verse 34, love one another as I have loved you. Jesus has set the new standard for love. He called this a new commandment. The Old Testament said that we're supposed to love our neighbor. Jesus himself said we're supposed to love our neighbor. But he takes it a step further. Not just to love people the way that we want to be treated. The way that we want to be loved. That standard is too low. He says love one another the way that I have loved you. And then he unpacks that in verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Lay down his life, it's this idea of sacrifice. And many of us wonder, you know, I think husbands often wonder about this. What if, if, if push came to shove, if I had to give my life for my wife, would I do it? If I had a, parents, mothers wonder about this. If I had to give my life for my child, would I, would I do it? Friends wonder, would, would I really Give my life for another person. We hear about these hero stories and these tragic situations and people risking their lives, giving their lives, and we wonder, would I be able to do that? Would I, in the big moment, would I be able to do it? There's no way of knowing until you're in a big moment. How can you build your assurance? How can you practice? How can you get the reflex of sacrifice? I'd encourage you to start small. To start small. You may not have an opportunity to sacrifice your life for a family member or for a friend, but you would have the opportunity to scrape the ice off their windshield before you go to work. Start small. Develop the habit of doing small things for other people. This is not the shirt I wore to church this morning. Between services, I was over at the cafe, which you should definitely visit. And as I was taking a, taking a sip, talking to some, uh, some other brothers in the church, I squeezed the cup, the lid popped up just a tiny little bit, and coffee ran right down my front. I'm glad I'm wearing black pants. And I asked Matt Doors, who's working the soundboard right now, in his jacket, if I could wear his shirt to preach today. Matt is fulfilling. You know, talks in the Sermon on the Mount. If someone asks you for your, you know, for your cloak, give him your tunic also. I didn't ask for his undershirt as well, okay? So he does have something under his jacket. But it's those kinds of small sacrifices that we must be in the habit of making every day, laying down our life for our friends. Ladies, Matt is single. He's obviously dapper. <laughs> Full head of hair, and you know where to find him. All right, he's a good man. I told you I'd make, you, make it up to you, Matt. All right. So the, the command to love, laying down our life for our friends. And then this is remarkable. Jesus says in verse 14, you are my friends. You are my friends. Jesus does not merely want to relate to us as Savior or as Creator or as Redeemer or as Judge. He is all of those things. He wants to relate to us as friends. And he went to the lengths of dying on the cross so that we could experience that level of relationship 
with him. He says, you are my friends. Again, here comes another if, but this is not quid pro quo. This is not this for that. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Because we have this friendship with Jesus, we want to follow his commands. The obedience is the evidence of the friendship. It's also pretty... You're not a very good friend if you give your friends commands, by the way. That's really not how like normal friendships work. But our friendship with Jesus is not normal. He is our friend. But he is also king of kings and lord of lords. And he still gives a commands. He says, no longer do I call you servants. For a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. He says, I don't want to relate to you as servants. I am your master, but I don't want to relate to you that way. I still give you commands, but I don't want you to hear those commands like a servant hears commands from their master. I want you to hear it as a friend. A servant obeys out of fear. A servant obeys because they feel like they have to. It's because of pressure coming from the outside. Jesus says, I don't want you to obey because of pressure from the outside. I want you to obey because of power from the inside. Because you're abiding in me in relationship to me as friends. Because I'm giving you the big picture. I'm telling you about the Father. I'm telling you about the plan and the purpose. I'm telling you there's a room prepared for you in heaven. I'm telling you that I'm coming to dwell and live inside of you. I'm letting you in on all of this. You're not just a servant that's just doing whatever I say. You're getting the big picture. Then he says in verse 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you. Again, it's not a normal friendship. Like like friends, they kind of choose one another. But Jesus chose us. When we first start a relationship with Jesus, we think, I'm the one who chose Jesus. I wasn't following him, and then someone told me what it means to follow him, and I chose. I have decided to follow Jesus, right? That, that's, a, that's how we normally think about it. But the further you follow him, it's like, I have decided. You're singing that song. I've decided to follow Jesus. And then the more you follow him, you realize, no, he decided. He chose me before the foundation of the world. My name was written in his Lamb's book of life. I didn't choose him. He chose me. I was rebelling against him. I was running from him, but he rescued me. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Now here's the going. Up until this point, he's been saying, abide, stay, stay. And once we are drawing power from Christ the vine, then we are encouraged to go. And the fruit here, he says, that you may go and bear fruit. Same image, different meaning. The fruit here, he's, he's talking about sharing our faith with other believers. And that the fruit says, again, same, same word, different meaning. Now he uses the word abide again. That the fruit, the lives that are touched by the gospel, that the, that, that is real life change, that they are abiding. That we would go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Then he says that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Talking about prayer again as he did earlier, these things I command you so that you will love one another. Again, all of chapter 13 and 14 and 15 and 16 and 17, it all fits together. Jesus keeps coming back to these themes of loving and abiding and obeying. This is what we are called upon to do, that we would go and bear fruit, that we'd abide, that we'd stay, but that in our staying, we would be emboldened and empowered to go 
in his strength to make uh, disciples and to bear fruit. And so it's at this Christmas season where we need to be looking inward in our relationship with Christ and making sure that we are abiding with him, but also that we are looking outward. We're going to close our service today by singing, O Little Town of Bethlehem, that talks about Christ coming and being seemingly unnoticed. And that was true of Bethlehem. There was no room for him. There was no Monet for him. There was nowhere for him to abide, to stay. No one noticed. May that, may that not be true today in Mississauga and in Georgetown and, and Brampton and, and Milton. May we be used to show people who Jesus is. To wake up the sleepy, dark cities in which we live to know who Christ is. The hymn says this, How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin, prune us, and enter in. Be born to us this day. We hear the Christmas angels, the great glad tidings tell. Oh, come to us, abide with us, our Lord Emmanuel. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you sent your Son to come and to abide with us. We thank you that he has come to abide in us. I pray, Lord God, in the name of Jesus Christ, that we would abide in your Son by the power of your Spirit, that we would see fruit of his life flowing through our life. God, we pray that you would use us, Lord, as we are committed to stay, to remain, to abide in Christ. I pray that we would go, that we would take invitations to our Christmas Eve service, that we would take gifts to children who have parents who are incarcerated, that we would take the, the provisions of, of, of canned goods for the open door um, a ministry down at square one, that Lord, you would use all of these things, that we would go, that we would bear fruit for your glory, that we would prove to be your disciples and that we would go and make disciples. Lord, meet with us, we pray. We want to abide with you, abide with us. In Jesus' name, amen.